all, you can't really talk about the early second wave of the women's movement without talking about This is a WLRN extended interview. This is Robin Long with Women's Liberation Radio News, and I'm here tonight with Megan Murphy. Uh, Megan, so rumor has it that you got your start in journalism as a pirate. <laughs> True. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I was living on Denman Island, which is a little Gulf island in BC, uh, about 1,100 people live there year-round, and this was in uh, maybe 2007 or 2008, maybe, yeah, 2008 probably, and uh, there's this little, oh, I probably shouldn't, <laughs> I don't want to get them in trouble now, there was a little pirate radio station over there in the middle of a sheep field at the time, and I did a weekly radio show there where I would play underground hip hop and then read passages from Andrea Dworkin. By. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, these are all of the things that I like. <laughs> I assume that your audience included more than sheep, which can be difficult in such a tiny community like that. Um, did you get a lot of backlash for that doing feminist no. radio? I mean, we had such a small audience for those those radio shows. So I think people found it interesting, to be honest. And I mean, I, I read other feminist work as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a particularly political radio show. It was kind of just like a fun, casual thing. Um, but I really enjoyed it. And so when I moved back to Vancouver to finish my degree, I was sort of partway through a BA at that point that I'd been doing on and off for years and I finally decided that I wanted to finish my BA and uh, to do that, I had to, you know, go to school full time, which I had been avoiding because I didn't want to go into a bunch of debt. I moved back to Vancouver and then started doing or got involved in a radio show at Vancouver Co-op Radio. That was a feminist radio show. So started doing more radio there and started blogging through the website that was attached to that radio show and then in 2012, started Feminist Current and my own podcast and my own website. When did Feminist Current decide to start covering identity politics? Was it really hard to do that? Um, I guess I had kind of avoided the issue for a while, to be honest, because partly I don't like to speak out about things or write about things until I'm fully certain of my arguments. So I like to think about ideas and make sure that I'm certain about what I'm going to say and that my arguments are solid and that I'm able to defend myself and that I'm comfortable with my arguments. I don't want to start talking about something that I don't fully understand or that I don't have a coherent argument to make around. So that was part of it. I was exploring the arguments. I was exploring the issue. I was thinking about it. I was reading what other feminist writers were saying and trying to figure out, you know, really what my perspective was and what my analysis was of, of gender identity before I said anything. But I also guess I sort of saw it a bit as a distraction from feminist work. And in some ways, it seemed kind of silly. Like, I think I wanted to for a little while, take this live and let live approach and say, okay, well, whatever, these people can do this if they feel like it. But then things started to change because they started imposing or, you know, trying to implement policy changes and, and create laws around gender identity. 
And on top of that, all these feminists I saw were getting attacked and smeared and no platformed. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's when I really realized that I had to start speaking out. I had sort of tried tentatively to challenge some arguments that I was seeing around, you know, Laverne Cox and Caitlyn Jenner and asking, you know, why is it empowering for this person to start adopting feminine stereotypes and to start self-objectifying and self-sexualizing, like, just because this person is male, it's it's empowering when they do it. But, you know, it's not, it's never been, empo- femininity has never been empowering for women. But yeah, you know, when I saw what was happening to women like Julie Bindle and others, you know, Sheila Jeffries, obviously, Julia Long, people like that, I was like, okay, like, I have to start saying something, this isn't okay. And then really, it was when Bill C-16 came up in Canada, which is Canada's gender identity legislation, I was like, okay, it's now or never, you know, it's going to be too late if we don't start speaking out and fighting back. Mm -hmm. And did you have to deal with the same kind of vehement backlash from the very beginning? Or is that something that's built over time? Oh, no, it was immediate. Immediately, as soon as I said anything critical about a trans identified person, or even started asking, you know, tentative questions about gender identity, there was a huge backlash, partly that that led to this petition to have me fired from Rabble, where I was working as an editor at the time. And, uh, you know, that was partly also to do with my work around prostitution and my, my challenges to, to men who, who pay for sex. But I was also immediately accused of being transphobic. And, you know, I was hardly saying anything at all. I was even at that point still trying to use their preferred pronouns and and those kinds of things. And, and, you know, when I saw that happen, I was like, okay, whatever. Like, I'm not going to dance around this anymore. I'm going to say what I really think. I'm not going to call men she or her. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what anyone says. The second that you say anything critical about gender identity ideology or about even a trans-identified person or about the legislation, if you even ask questions, you get attacked and smeared and you know, your job is threatened and your life is threatened. So there's Mm -hmm. no point in playing these games and and trying to, you know, be polite. We have to tell the truth and we have to fight back and we have to stand up for women and, and either way we're going to get attacked. So just go for it. Yeah. Speaking of attacked, you were recently banned from Twitter. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, I've been on Twitter since 2011 I've never had any issues until this year. And I've said the kinds of things that I started to get supposedly locked down for 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 quite some time. You know, I've I've refused to use preferred pronouns. I call males male, even if they identify as transgender. I tell the truth. I report facts on Twitter. I report facts about men, about trans people. You know, I'm not engaging in hate speech in any way. I'm certainly not saying anything violent. But I tell the truth, and uh, people don't like that. But I assumed that on Twitter I had the right to speak the truth and, you know, as a journalist to report facts about male behavior and about the feminist movement and about trans activism. But I got temporarily suspended a couple times in August when I started tweeting about a local man named Lisa Crutt, who's involved in the labor movement here in Vancouver. He identifies as a sadist. So he works as a dominatrix and as well as being involved in these these local unions. Um, I guess he does that on the side part time. 
And he was given a platform to speak at the Vancouver Women's March and was using that platform to promote prostitution as empowering and to kind of disparage radical feminists. And I just found it really appalling and shocking, partly that they would offer a man a platform, but also a man who was clearly anti-feminist. And connected to the fact that the Vancouver Women's March had made it really clear that radical feminists weren't welcome at the march. So, you know, actual women, actual feminists, actual women who are doing work to fight violence against women were made to feel unwelcome while they were platforming this anti-feminist man who is promoting anti-feminist ideas simply because he identifies as transgender. So I was tweeting about him and, again, just tweeting facts about what he had done because one of the things that he had done was to lead efforts at the BC Federation of Labor Convention in 2016 to have Vancouver Rape Relief blacklisted. So he was trying to defund Vancouver Rape Relief, which is Canada's longest standing rape crisis center um, and uh, transition house. So he successfully had them blacklisted along with some of his allies in the labor movement. Um, So I tweeted about that. Um, I tweeted about the fact that he got Feminist Current's ads pulled from our website. He has a contact at She Knows, which was the company that was hosting ads for us on our site. And he contacted them and claimed that we were engaging in hate speech, which we are not. And they pulled our ads. Um, He also is one of a small group of trans activists here in Vancouver who started a smear campaign against a local anti-poverty activist named Yuli Chan because she was affiliated with Vancouver Rape Relief. You know, she was a supporter of Vancouver Rape Relief and because she tweeted a couple links from my website, Feminist Current. So they used these things as, as an opportunity to smear her and have her no platform from a conference here in Vancouver, a leftist conference. So I just tweeted these facts. I didn't, you know, say much more beyond what was actually happening. And and they suspended my account temporarily for that and forced me to delete the tweets, which was strange. And then finally, in November, my account was locked down when I tweeted men aren't women and tweeted what is the difference between a trans woman and a man? And, you know, these are things that I say and ask quite frequently. And, you know, when I ask questions like, what is the difference between a trans woman and a man? I'm being sincere. I'm not being facetious. I'm not trying to be rude, but I'm trying to get to the core of what trans activists are arguing. You know, like, how is it possible for a male to become female? What does that entail? You know, what is the difference between a trans woman and a man? What is it that you're claiming is happening here? What is the change that's happening that makes this person not male anymore? And no one will answer these questions. No one will explain And these are questions that we need to answer if we're going to be expected to accept this idea that the moment that a man declares himself a woman, he's literally female and then has the right to, say, access women and girls change rooms or to be transferred to a female prison or to play on women's sports teams and things like that. So there was that. They locked my account and asked me to delete these tweets. I deleted the tweets. And then finally, on November 23rd, they permanently suspended me after I tweeted a link to a blog post about a man who had been calling up local estheticians here in the Vancouver area and asking them for Brazilian bikini waxes. And when they declined, saying they only offered the service to females, he essentially tried to extort money out of these women. You know, he took them to court and tried to sue them for discrimination on the basis that he was now claiming to be transgender. 
Weren't these women working class women who really couldn't afford legal representation? Yeah, of course. I mean, they're just, they're, you know, independent business owners. They're just women who are, you know, you don't make that much money as an esthetician. So not only should it be clear that they would probably feel unsafe being alone in a room with a man, especially a man like this, who doesn't seem to respect women's boundaries. But yeah, also, these aren't women who are making a lot of money. These aren't women who can even afford lawyers. You know, it's totally... It's just appalling that any person would behave like that towards another person in general. But it seems pretty obvious to me that because this person has been engaged in in numerous, numerous court cases over the years, he has a pattern, a longstanding pattern and habit of suing local businesses in the same way to try to get money out of them. You know, now it seems like he sort of leapt on this this transgender trend to try to do the same to these women without concern for their lives or livelihood and obviously not caring if they felt intimidated by his request. So, yeah, so I tweeted a link to a blog post that revealed his identity. So somebody found out because he had been kept anonymous in the media here in Canada, although the, the women he was suing, their names were in the media, but he was only referred to by the initials JY. Mm-hmm. So a blogger discovered his real identity wrote a blog post about it. I tweeted the blog post and said, is it true that JY is actually the name? And I linked to his Twitter account, which still had his mailed name on it. You know, he's still going by Jonathan and uh, had Jessica in brackets. And then somebody else had posted a screenshot from a review that he'd left on like Yelp or something like that saying, thanks so-and-so for the great bikini wax. It was a review of a salon, and it had his face and his name attached to it. So I tweeted that screenshot and said, yeah, it's him, because it confirmed my question. And that's what Twitter suspended me for permanently, for tweeting that screenshot saying, yeah, it's him. Wow. And what has the impact of all this been on the rest of your life? I mean, wasn't Twitter a really big part of your work? Yeah, I mean, it has a huge impact. I mean, I'm an independent writer. Like, I depend, just as as any writer and journalist depends on Twitter, and Twitter is aware that writers and journalists depend on their platform to promote their work, to share information, to connect with sources, to connect with editors, to connect with other journalists, to follow news. I can't, (laughs) I'm not even able to follow what's going on in the world without Twitter. Like, I can't engage in debates. I can't follow debates. I can't contact people. I'm not able to promote my work. I mean, it has an enormous impact on my ability to make a living. It also like has a huge impact on my ability to support other women because a large part of what I did on Twitter, like I had a pretty big following. So if other women were being attacked or smeared who had smaller followings than I did, I was able to signal boost what was happening to them and get support for them. And I can't do that anymore. It suppresses me and my free speech, but it also has like a broader impact on the feminist movement when they're silencing and shutting down women who are, you know, big followings and who have voices that people are listening to and paying attention to and where I'm able to, you know, promote or, or like I said, signal boost what's going on in the world with regard to feminism and, and feminist activism and trans activism and things like that. Are you getting any kind of legal help? Is there a legal action that you can take to help correct this issue? Uh, yeah, I'm not going to get into it too closely right now. But yeah, sure. I am. I am. Good. I do have legal representation and I will be challenging Twitter's decision.
I mean, I come from the the old days when we had lesbian connection and uh, women's coffee houses and bulletin boards to share information. I'd really hate to see us sort of thrown back to that era. But I guess if we have to, in order to communicate, we'll do that. But it, it just it's so frustrating to see that happening to you. You have a, a an appearance upcoming in Vancouver that has also had a lot of issues. Right. So on January 10th, there's an event that is happening in Vancouver at the Vancouver Public Library to discuss gender identity, ideology and women's rights. We booked the room. Um, well, the organizers booked the room. I didn't actually do it myself. The two women who are just independent women who really were politicized around this issue, actually, around trans activism and wanted to do something and wanted to force this conversation to finally happen in Canada because it has not been happening. The media won't cover it. Politicians won't acknowledge that there's even a debate. And they booked the room for 6.30 p.m. on January 10th, which is a Thursday, And we hired seven security guards on our own accord with the money that we fundraised. And just recently, the library contacted us. The library was receiving a lot of pressure to cancel the event from trans activists. And they released a statement saying that they wouldn't be canceling the event. But they also disparaged me in the process and essentially said, you know, we won't be canceling the event. But, you know, Megan is a bad person and we don't like what she's saying. But we have to, you know, we have to uphold free speech. And then recently they contacted the organizers and said that they wanted $2,000 more in security fees because they wanted to hire seven more security guards of their own. So I, I guess there would be 14 security guards in total to host. So a you talk already, the, the organizers already paid for seven security guards. Right. So the library said, you know, due to danger, potential danger to patrons and staff due to these protesters, they wanted to hire seven more security guards, which seems excessive to me. And then told us that we had to hold the event after hours, which on a Thursday night is at 9.30 p.m., which is ridiculous, of course. I mean, obviously, there'll be parents coming who have kids and who might have school in the morning and people have to get up for work in the morning. Essentially, I see it as an attempt on their part to force us to cancel so that they don't have to deal with the harassment that they're getting from trans activists. And if the trans activists are the ones that are are creating the threat of violence, why aren't their organizations being built for this extra security? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is we aren't the ones posing a risk. We're just trying to have a conversation. You know, feminists are not violent. We're not the ones threatening people with violence. The people who are threatening violence are trans activists. You know, we've received a number of graphic, violent, misogynist, sexualized threats through Eventbrite, which is where we're selling tickets. So I just, I find it weird that we're the ones who are consistently positioned as somehow hateful or a threat or as violent, despite the fact that we are none of those things, and the only people engaging in misogynist hate speech and violence and threats of violence are trans activists. But also, you know, like, the library has not spoken out critically about the behavior of the trans activists. You know, the mayor of Vancouver referred to me and the event as despicable and said nothing about the fact that these people were threatening us and saying really disgusting things and trying to shut down our free speech. And we're just, we're feminists. We're just women. And we're trying to have a conversation about something that threatens our rights and safety. And yet we're being vilified. And these people will say nothing about the behavior of trans activists. 
Ah, uh, sure. I've never heard of a Radfem uh, threatening to rape and murder someone. No, never. But the event is still going on. The organizers were able to raise the money to hire the extra security then? Right, yeah. So we've been able to raise the money to pay for the security. We're going to hold the event anyway. It's going to be at 9.30 p.m. People are still coming because people really want to support this conversation and to support us. So I think that's significant in and of itself that despite these hurdles, people... And, you know, despite the fact that I'm sure lots of people are worried about showing up. You know, they're worried that they'll be... They'll be somehow smeared just for just for being at the event or, you know, they're worried about what protesters might do and people are still coming to support. They know that this is important. They know that it's time to stand up against this. I think that's a strong message to send to the library and to trans activists and to local politicians and the media and the mayor. People care about this that much that they're willing to take a risk to support and show up and have the conversation. Do you think that this growing wave of people who are standing up and showing up at these events, do you think that's going to change the environment of censorship? Or do you think it's going to continue to get worse for a while before it gets better? I think that it will help. I think that it will challenge these people's entitlement, like their belief that they can just shut down any conversation they don't want. It'll show people that, no, we're going to have the conversation anyway. We aren't scared. You don't have the right to shut down people's free speech. You don't have the right to shut down feminist speech. I think that if we caved and canceled, or if the library caved and canceled, then the opposite message would have been sent, which is that bullies win. Mm -hmm. But, you know, because we're going on with the event and having it anyway, and people are showing up, it'll send the message that no, free speech does matter. And and we aren't going to cave to, you know, a few vicious bullies. You are listening to WLRN. What do you think the ultimate solution is going to be? I think all of us radical feminists are looking towards the future and we're we're wondering how are, are we going to continue in the future with our political goals? Do you have any ideas? Are there any ways that we can organize that we're not taking advantage of yet? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that one thing that radical feminists have done wrong is that we have sort of hidden ourselves away. So while I understand why women feel afraid to kind of be out about their political views because it's so dangerous right now, I think there's been too many of us who've gotten comfortable sort of sticking within our own cliques and our own groups and our, you know, secret Facebook groups and like having anonymous names online. And we should be doing that also. Those things are important. Like I really, I do think it's really important that women meet and talk amongst themselves and strategize amongst themselves. But I also think that we need to focus more on getting out there and making ourselves visible and heard, you know, to other, to leftists in the media, et cetera, et cetera, because otherwise we're sort of reduced to, oh, there's just a few crazy radical feminists who think these things, we don't even know who they are. Um, and then the few of us who do sort of get out in, in the media and, and are out in public are are more easily dismissed because they can just pretend again that it's just a few of us and they can call us hateful instead of understanding that there's actually lots and lots and lots of people around the world who are concerned about this gender identity ideology and these laws. 
Um, I also think it's really important that we build our own platforms because we are now in this place where we've sort of become dependent on places like Twitter and Facebook. And now Twitter and Facebook are censoring people for ideological reasons and we have nowhere else to go. That was sort of a failure on the parts of the general public, not on the parts of feminists per se. You know, I also depended on, on Facebook and Twitter almost solely. And luckily, I do have my own platform at Feminist Current, because otherwise, really, there would be nowhere for me to publish these views, or almost nowhere. So I think that's the other thing, is building our own platforms, like like you you all have done with this radio show, that's really great, and that's really important, making sure that there are spaces for us to talk, and, and to talk about what we're doing, and to talk about feminist ideas, and to promote our work, and to promote the work of other women, but also, yeah, kind of forcing forcing people to pay attention to us. You know, we have to just hold our own events. We can't really wait around for the media to come to us or for somebody else to ask us to speak. We kind of have to do it ourselves because clearly what what the mainstream wants and what liberals want and what the left wants is to silence us and to make us invisible. One thing that I've wondered over and over again, just following your story over time, is how do you take care of yourself in the midst of the storm of attack from these people? How do you keep yourself safe and how do you take care of yourself emotionally? Well, I mean, I have a thick skin. <laughs> I, you know, the first kind of few times this happened to me, I did find it really emotionally exhausting and pretty awful. And I kind of just got used to it. <laughs> so there's that. I mean, I, I think I've always been pretty tough. You know, I don't take these kinds of attacks personally. I understand that they're political. Um, and it's not really about me per se. Uh, but uh, I don't want to say like I'm just, I'm inherently able to take this kind of stuff because I've been desensitized a little bit to it from being attacked for so long. But I mean, I also, I... I handle stress well. I don't have issues with anxiety or mood disorders or depression or anything like that. So I'm generally like a pretty stable person. So I'm really lucky in that way. Um, if I had a lot of stressors or other issues that I was dealing with in my life, it might be more difficult for me to deal with all this. And at the same time, you know, like I just, I have a really strong support network. Like I never would have been able to deal with all this if there weren't so many women all around the world who were supporting me. I have mm -hmm. so much support and I have local support. So not only do I have support from women all around the world, thank God, but there's also, you know, local women and local feminists here in Vancouver who are really supportive of me. So I've never felt alone. You know, it's I've never felt like I'm speaking out alone. There are lots of other women who are who are supporting me and who are also speaking out and taking risks. I also, you know, try to maintain like a normal life. I try to not work all the time. I do kind of end up working all the time sometimes. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's the nature of my job. But I also I try to, you know, not answer my emails on the weekends. I purposely try to get offline on the weekends. I try to go out with my friends and do other things or like hang out with my partner or whatever. Like I try to just separate myself and have a normal life where I'm not constantly engaged in these kinds of fights. And 
you know, I am I'm lucky that I have like I have a lot of friends here in Vancouver. I have, you know, like if I need to get out of the house, I have people that I can go for a drink with, you know. It's it's so much of it has to do with not feeling isolated and I feel really I feel really bad and I feel really worried about there's so many women you know, in, around the world in North America, who I think feel really isolated. And I think that would make it so much harder to feel like, you know, you're the only one in your town who has these ideas, and you have no one to talk to about it, and no one to process and no one to support you when you do speak out. I mean, that would be really, really, really hard. Sure. Yeah. You're talking about all these wonderful people around you. Who are your big inspirations these days? Who are you reading? What's inspiring you? The women at Vancouver Rape Relief has have always kind of been my mentors. I've learned so much from them about feminism, but also in terms of sort of how to engage with other people, how to deal with conflict. I think that they're really good role models and, and mentors in terms of the work that they do. So, you know, people like Lee Lakeman and Hella Kerner, um, also people like Julie Bendall, who has been so brave all this time, you know, all the women in the UK are really inspiring to me, you know, the the way that they've been able to push this conversation and force this conversation by hosting talks and by forcing themselves into the media has been really inspiring and impressive, because it's made me realize that we can do it. And we just have to kind of be brave and force our way in. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, lots of just independent women who are working really hard. The women who are organizing this event here in Vancouver are just regular women. They're not women who were involved in the feminist movement necessarily. They're just women who see that this is a problem and see this as a danger and wanted to do something. So they did something. They organized an event and it's been a lot of work for them. And they're taking a lot of risk in doing this in terms of, you know, maybe being fired or being ostracized by friends and losing political allies and things like that. Um, you know, there's just, there's lots of really brave, regular women who are standing up um, despite the risks. And that's really, really inspiring. Absolutely. Well, I know that you are working on a Patreon right now. Is there anything else coming up beyond the Vancouver event that you're looking forward to? Since the Twitter ban, I was contacted about speaking at a number of different places. So that's, you know, a good thing. I'm going to be speaking in Calgary in March. I think I'm going to be going to the UK at least a couple times in the spring. Um, I'm going to be speaking at UBC a couple times in upcoming months. So I'll have to update people about dates on my Facebook page when everything's confirmed. But yeah, there's definitely going to be, I mean... <laughs> Being banned from Twitter does have a real impact on my work, but I'm definitely not going to shut up. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah good. Do you have any message that you would like to give to our listeners who are largely radical and lesbian feminists? What should we all be doing to weather the whole trannish inquisition? We have to be doing everything we can. It's so dangerous what's happening right now, and it feels like we're losing. Like they've been so successful at pushing through legislation and policy changes and scaring people into not speaking and in trying to frame, you know, basic feminist speech and material reality as hate speech. So we need to be fighting back in any way we can. So by writing, producing media, holding events, holding talks. You know, what the lesbians have been doing at the, the dyke marches and at Pride, you know, here in Vancouver, some very brave lesbian women 
showed up at the dike march knowing that they could potentially be attacked and that they would probably be screamed at. And they showed up with their signs, like proudly displaying lesbian pride. And they, they did the march. And some women did that in San Francisco as well. Some women did it in New Zealand, in London. You know, I think that those things are really, really impactful and really important. Great. Well, Megan, thank you so much for spending time with us. Hopefully you'll be joining us again sometime soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for doing this work and for your courage. I really admire it and appreciate it. You've just been listening to an interview with Megan Murphy, founder and editor of Feminist Current. WLRN thanks Megan Murphy for joining us this month for this extended interview. Megan will be appearing at the Vancouver Public Library on January 10th, 2019 at 9.30 p.m. The event is called Gender Identity, Ideology, and Women's Rights, a talk and Q&A with Feminist Current's Megan Murphy. Tickets for this event are available on Eventbrite. Do you like what you're hearing on WLRN? Consider making a donation through our WordPress site by clicking on the Donate button. This is Robin. Thanks for listening.